What fears do you wrestle with? You might call them, uh, there's a different term for them. Maybe uh, they're worries, concerns, anxieties. But you know, it's, it's those things that, that keep you awake at night. It's those things that, that when you're doing something sort of mindless, they come flashing into your mind. Those things that, that bring a certain level of stress to your life. In one way or another, we all wrestle with those. It might be something about your future. Maybe it's uncertain. It may be a financial concern. How am I going to pay for this or that? Maybe something related to your family, your relationships. Maybe it's something about your past. Maybe it's your health. I mean, the list is somewhat endless. As you think about the potential things that might bring a sense of fear to us. But I suspect that one of the fears that we wrestle with maybe in secret and silence, might be the most difficult. It is the fear of God. It is a fear about God in our lives. It is the fear that God is going to ask us to do something That we don't want to do. That God is going to bring us to a place where we don't want to be. That God is going to lead us into an experience that we don't want to experience. That God is going to prevent us from doing something that we really want to do. And you see throughout the scriptures, people who wrestle with fears about God. And perhaps no one more more obvious and more blatant than the disciples. And we see that so clearly as we come to the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has, has been there with them, praying, they've been sleeping, and, and soon the, the, uh, the soldiers and the, the leaders of, of the religious leaders come to arrest him. And, and the writer says, at that point, and what he means by that is Jesus says, look, This is why I'm here. Because they want to fight. The disciples want to put up a fight for Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no, no. This is fulfilling what the scriptures have said about me from the beginning. This is why I've come. And he says, at that point, when they hear that, the disciples desert Jesus and flee. They run in fear. Now, it's not like this is the first time Jesus has spoken about death and the cross and sacrifice and surrender. He has been talking about that almost from the beginning. And they've heard it and they've heard it over and over again. But there is something about this moment that what was theory becomes real. You have a sense that before this, while they didn't understand and they may not have liked what Jesus was saying or agreed with him, it was sort of like, well, there goes Jesus talking about the death, death and cross, the cross again. But now they realize this is how it's going to be. And there's a big difference between theory and reality. 
I see that all the time in uh, premarital counseling sessions. You talk about all the different things trying to prepare a couple for marriage. All the different dynamics of things that, that you're trying to help them see and think through and think about as they get ready to, to join their lives together. And the whole time they're sitting there shaking their heads going, yeah, we get it, we get it, we get it. And, and I think they think that they do. I think I thought I did. But I'm not sure they do. Because what ends up happening, what I've decided a long, number of years ago is that I think one of, the, one of the best things I could do for them is to, part of the premarital counseling, is to schedule a couple of postmarital counseling sessions. And so about a month or so after the wedding, I contact them and say, hey, let's get together, like I talked about. It's fascinating how the conversations differ. Because what was theory for a long time, now is reality. And when we start talking about things, it's not, well, maybe someday it's, yeah, we just went through that. And I think the disciples are wrestling with that. It, it's been theory. There's Jesus talking about it again. Now, this is real. And the fear overwhelms them. They struggle. In Matthew 16, Jesus gets the disciples together and he says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, some people say John the Baptist, some people Elijah, some people Jeremiah, and the list goes on and on. And then he turns to them and says, okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter raises his hand and says, I know, I know. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, my father has revealed this to you, Peter. The implication is you could not have thought of that on your own. And it's on that truth that my kingdom, my church will be built and nothing, not even the gates of hell, can overcome it. And then Jesus begins to talk about the cross and about his death. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, stop talking like this. Heaven forbid, Lord, that's not going to happen to you. And the implication is we won't let it. And I heard someone say once, the disciples understand the personage of Jesus, but they can't grasp the purpose of Jesus. They can, they can fathom in their minds that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That is something they've been waiting for a long time, and they see it. What they can't realize is how that's going to work itself out in Jesus' life, and ultimately his death. They are wrestling to believe that the way of the cross is the way of life. They just can't quite see it. Because I suspect in the back of their minds, as they run from the garden, maybe echoing words echoing into their minds are, take up your cross and follow me. It's not just about Jesus. And when you stand in the shadow of the cross, when you allow the shadow of the cross to fall on you, you begin to understand that the definition of discipleship is surrender. What, what it means to be a Christian is, is the surrender of our life. In, in Matthew Bates' book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, his basic premise is that we, we tend to talk about faith 
as if it only means I believe in something. And he says, as important as that is, and and as vital as that is, that's really not the point, the whole point of the gospel. The point of the gospel and the point of being a Christian and following Jesus and the very definition of it is allegiance to Jesus the King. It is recognizing that Jesus is the King, not us. And that we have given our lives in allegiance to him, to serve him, to honor him, to obey him with our minds, with our actions, with our attitudes, with everything about us. And the desire for that is really what it means to be a Christian. And that's what you find as you, you, you have a sense of the shadow of the cross falling on you and on me. Jesus hardly ever says, if ever, believe in me. What he says is, follow me. It's action. And we need to believe. Believing is important. But that's not the fulfillment. That's just getting us going. When we fail to see that discipleship is rooted in the cross, that discipleship is rooted in this this life of surrender and abandonment and allegiance to the king, when we fail to understand that, our fears have a tendency to tempt us to fight for Jesus instead of surrendering to Jesus. Because... Until we understand that, until we, as much as we can, grasp that and embrace that, we will be much more interested in in self-protection than in self-sacrifice. And so you see the disciples, they're in the garden. They're, They're flashing swords. Jesus, we'll fight for you to the death. And earlier, Peter has said, Jesus, I'll go to the death for you. And what he means is, I'll go to the death for you as long as dying is the way I think it ought to happen. Because we all, we, we all admire people who die in, in the heat of a battle, standing up for what's right and, and striving in that way. We honor those kind of people. But not so much people on a scaffold or burned to the stake or hanging on a cross. And yet that's the call of the gospel. And when we miss that, we don't understand that. We are tempted to fight for Jesus. It's one of the things that that concerns me about the church in America is that it feels like often the voices we hear are much more about, are much more self-serving than they are self-giving. And I understand that because I'm always thinking about self-serving. And I suspect you're thinking about self-serving. It's the human condition. That's why the call of the gospel is something different. The call to surrender. And it's not as though we don't have weapons. I mean, we have weapons. The church has, has used those weapons through the centuries. The weapons of wealth and power and influence. The weapons of our tongues the weapons of of whatever God has given us. We have used those weapons. But the call of the gospel is not to protect Jesus. 
It is to surrender to Jesus. And it's one thing to stand up for the truth. That's a part of our calling. That's a part of surrendering is standing up for the truth and being willing to give ourselves for the truth. That's surrender. And so Bonhoeffer writes in The Cost of Discipleship, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every person must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. But it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. It is always the call of the gospel. And when Christ calls a person, he bids us Come and die. Take up your cross and follow me. It's hard. Sometimes I think people who are not Christians may see that more clearly than we do. I heard not too long ago about, about an atheist, probably 30, 40 years ago, who uh, was, one, was an atheist who was often in the public eye, often spoke for that, that mindset. He wrote an autobiography, and in this autobiography, he acknowledged that there were two periods of time in his life, about 10 years apart, where he was at the, almost at the end of his rope. And he said, the second time was so bad, he said, that I almost prayed. He said, I almost got down on my knees. And he said, because I believe... To pray is to get down on your knees. Isn't that a fascinating perspective? Thinking about the posture of prayer. He said, I was so, you know, I was at the point where I I almost prayed. And I'm sure that probably if I had prayed, I, I would have gotten up a different person than I went down. So probably I would have gotten off my knees a better person than I am. He said, I wrestled with it for a long time, but I finally came to the point where I decided, no, I'm not going to do that. And he said, in retrospect, I'm glad. I'm glad I didn't pray. And then he said this, because I have a suspicion that when I got up from my knees, I would have lost me. And the person telling this said, that's one of the most profound theological statements I've ever heard. He understands that to pray, to come before God and to surrender your, to pray is to surrender yourself. And you lose me. I said, I couldn't do it. And you and I wrestle with that too. And the reason we wrestle so much with that is because we have a skewed view of who God is. Somewhere in the back of our minds, we have come to believe, maybe surely subconsciously, but we've come to believe that God is the enemy. That God's going to put demands on us that's going to make our lives miserable. God's going to put demands on us that's going to harm us and hurt us and prevent us from doing all the things that we want to do. Isn't that the lie that the serpent tells Adam and Eve. 
And I'm convinced that everything about life comes back to our view of God. Every decision we make comes back to our view of God. Our attitudes come back to our view of God. Our actions come back to our view of God. Our willingness to surrender comes back to our view of God. What's fascinating is that when, you, when we stand in the shadow of the cross and we feel and hear this call to surrender, when we run from that, what we're really doing is running from grace. Because in the shadow of the cross is where we find grace. This is, this is a place of grace. This is a place of God's love. And we come to see that if God would do this for us, he must be good. He must be, he must be better than we have ever dreamed or imagined. He must want something for us that is far beyond anything we have ever dreamed for ourselves in the cross. And when we really stand there and let the impact of the cross come upon us, we begin to see that this is not God our enemy. This is God our Savior. And it becomes our place of eternal refuge. It's fascinating to me to look at passages in the Old Testament, particularly, that talk about shadows. They're like, like these. Psalm 17, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57 that we read a few moments ago. Have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 91, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow. Rest in the shadow of the Almighty. God speaks to the prophet Isaiah, I put my words in your mouth and covered you with the shadow of my hand. I who set the heavens in place, who laid the foundations of the earth, and who say to Zion, you are my people. You're my beloved possession. You're mine. It kind of, it kind of adds a nuance to the first verse of Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Maybe what shall I fear? Or as one translation says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. So why am I afraid? Why am I afraid? And the call of the cross It is to surrender, but it's to surrender to the one who loves us with an everlasting love, the deep, deep love of Jesus. The unfathomable, reckless love of Jesus. I heard recently about a woman who was a a violin virtuoso. She was highly regarded. She was, she was moving up the, the circles of, of her profession. And she was a committed Christian, deeply committed Christian. 
And she said, one day, it's as though I heard the voice of God saying to me, will you give me your violin? And she said, Lord, I gave you my violin years ago. He said, I know, but what I'm really asking is, will you give up your violin? He said, well, Lord, now you're asking something different. He said, Lord, I... My violin's my life. He said, I know. She said, I I fretted about that decision for quite a while. I said, Lord, if if, if I give up my violin, I'll have nothing left. It's everything to me. He said, I know. And she said, I went back and forth about that decision with agony of spirit and soul. And finally, finally I came to the place where I said, Lord, okay, I'll give up my violin. That's what you're asking me. I trust you. And the person she was telling this to asked her, so did anything happen when you did that? She had a big smile on her face and said, oh yeah. She said, what happened is for the first time, I was free. She said, for the first time in my life, I owned my violin rather than my violin owning me. She said, I had insured my fingers for a great deal of money because I I knew that if I could no longer use my fingers, what possible would I have of my life left? And she said, I lived in constant fear about that happening. And when I gave it up, I was free. I was free. And here's the thing that struck me about that. Is that when we stand in the shadow of the cross, there is this distinct call to surrender, to allegiance to Jesus the King. But when we do that, what we're really doing is trading fear for freedom. We think we're losing our lives. What we're really doing is we're finding our life in the one who gave us life. I suspect that there's something in every one of our lives that maybe we need to trade fear for freedom. Father, we want to thank you for the cross. Thank you for the call to to give up our fears and to be awash in your freedom. Give us grace to do just that. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.